namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa A central part of our practice is the investigation of the mind. Developing vipassana means clearly seeing the processes of body and mind and seeing them correctly without attachment or judgment or discrimination. Each object that arises to the mind has to be viewed in its own nature. Nothing is too trivial to notice and nothing is so important that it needs to be held on to. This involves a very close attention to detail, which is essential for progress. It's important that we are able to notice specific objects, dhammas. The concept of a dhamma is one from the Abhidhamma. It's like the... um, the simplest possible unit of experience, phenomena arising to the mind, is a dhamma. The Buddhist scholar Shcherbatsky wrote in Russian, but in the English translation of his book translates dhammas as point instant. A point instant. Point being a unit of space and instant being a unit of time. It's an infinitesimal. It's the smallest possible experience that we can have. It is a moment of mind, but seen from the objective side is a point instant, a single occurrence. In order to become sharp enough to notice these instantaneous dhammas, a great depth of equanimity is important, upeka. We need to be aware when the mind is moving off that center point, when the the balance is disturbed, to be keenly aware of it. That's Vedanusati, contemplation of feelings. Notice the, the reaction. And by making it conscious, fully conscious, then it takes the juice out of the emotional reaction and allows the mind to settle back into that the balance, that central balance. Upeka has many aspects. As a Brahma Vihara, Upeka is equanimity towards beings. As an emotional tone, it's the middle point between pleasure and pain. It's the neutral feeling. But as a mental formation, In uh, the context of practicing meditation, it's neutrality towards dhammas. There is a a Pali word 
that describes this mental state very accurately, very uh, precisely, is tatramajatata. This is translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi as specific neutrality, which captures the meaning quite well. If we break down the the word in the Pali and, and give it a, a more literal translation, it would mean being in the middle about that. Tatra is that, Majja is middle. So middleness and Atta is a, as a suffix, it means something like the English ness, you know, makes a, a noun out of a, out of a, a verb. So middleness about that, the that is the specificity. You have to notice specific objects so that one is practicing moment by moment. And it's not a kind of general fuzzy awareness that we're trying to develop. It's being specifically aware of what's the object presenting itself to consciousness at this moment and being in the middle about it, being equanimous, noticing it clearly, noticing it clearly without taking ownership of it, without seeing it as me or mine. This is a, a skill Almost, you could say, a knack. It's something you learn by by doing. It's not easy at first, because it goes against our inveterate, ingrained habit of relating to the phenomena that pass through our minds from a, a selfish perspective. What's in it for me? Is this good? Is this bad? Does this hurt? Do I want more of it? Do I want less of it? We have to let go of all that if we're going to see it clearly. This is just an object. And we know it's we know its nature. And you don't hold on to anything. No. Two fold skill in developing this kind of meditation is first of all not missing anything. And second of all, not holding on to anything. Sometimes we use the phrase letting go, but that's even a little bit misleading because letting go implies you've held it in the first place. You don't, you don't hold on to anything. You just let them pass through. And this uh, applies to all classes of phenomena, whether it's internal or external, whether it's internal object like a mind uh, a mind object, a thought or an emotion, or an external object experienced through the senses, like a sound, a smell, a feeling, a sensation in the body. Now, all these are simply objects of consciousness. If the meditator gets some skill in this, uh, in this practice, it naturally settles the mind into peacefulness and equanimity without a self-reference point to the objects, the mind is at ease. And things pass through, but they don't affect the mind. There may be a significant amount of uh, struggle and turmoil before you get to that point. But with the greater amount of determination and 
spiritual courage, then you'll pass through any kind of turmoil more quickly. As an old saying, the way out is down and through. One um, needs to resist the temptation to retreat back into the security, the, the false security of the known. You must have a degree of spiritual courage to step out into the unknown. One way of, a very critical way, a very important key element to finding that determination is the, the quality of sadha, faith. You need to have faith that there is another shore. When uh, I was in Thailand, one place that I stayed, to get to the uh, eating hall, we had to um, cross a little creek. And most of the time it was it was not an issue. It was a small little creek of wood running over a rocky bed and the water would be maybe up to your ankles. And just quite easy to, to walk across in your flip-flops, no problem. But after a monsoon rain, there would be a rush, a torrent of water through this little gully that at times could be as high as my waist. And the creek was uh, just wide enough to, to step across in three steps. And the first step, one could hold onto a branch from the near shore and so tread with confidence. Likewise, on the third step, you could grab a branch from the, from the far shore. But there was one step in the middle where you just had to let go of everything and just step out into the torrent. And it's, with the spiritual crossing, it becomes even more challenging because until one has crossed over, you don't have any experience of there even being a far shore. But you won't cross unless you let go of the near shore. You can't hang on to that branch. You have to let go and step out. This is where the element of sadha becomes absolutely essential. In uh, Buddhism, we don't have all kinds of stuff you're required to believe. It's not, in that sense, a religion of, of dogmatism. It's all based on experience and practice. Ehe Pasako is come and see, check it out. But the third noble truth, the truth that there is an end to suffering and the unconditioned, that is one element that must be taken on faith for a long time. Until one has glimpsed Nibbana, one cannot even conceive it. This is something that initially attracted me to the Theravada form of Buddhism. That when I looked at any other religion or even other schools of Buddhism, there, there's no one else kept the concept of the transcendental element so pure, so pristine. But the psychological drawback to that is with Nibbana being recognized as completely other, not this, indefinable in, in verbal terms and incomprehensible to the logical, rational mind, 
it leaves the beginning student rather at a loss for direction. It's like we're telling you, you got to do all this stuff and practice diligently. And at the end, there's something really wonderful, but can't tell you what it is. It's out there. Um, the unconditioned is the. It's important to remember that is that the, the goal of the path is the unconditioned. And this is the other side of um, the coin. I started talking about how important it is to notice specific objects and have a very sharp, clear, momentary noticing. And that's true. But it's also equally important that we don't forget the goal. We don't allow the mind to become cramped and, and narrow. I like the analogy of walking or hiking in, uh, in rough country, in the mountains or in the deep forest. When you're out on the trail, you need to pay close attention to where you're placing your feet so you don't stumble over roots or rocks or put your foot in a, in a crevasse or something. So you need to mostly pay attention to immediately where you're stepping. But if you don't stop every now and again and look, take in the, the vista and the, look at the sky, see where the sun is, or look at the landmarks, you'll get lost. You'll just wander in circles. Do you need to have that that sense of of understanding of of the the goal? And eventually, you you come to it through the close attention. If you um, read the descriptions in the Vasudhimagga of how the final stages of the insight path work, it basically boils down to the meditator getting uh, fed up with samsara. Initially, the objects that are arising to the mind are either attractive and wonderful and fascinating, or they're terrifying and, and threatening. And it's basically these two forces of fear and fascination that whirl us around in samsaric existence through birth after birth, we're coming into existence in various realms of existence and experiencing a multitude of objects beyond anything we can comprehend. Samsara is vast and complex and there are many, many sources of fascination and many, many sources of terror. And we're constantly running and whirling around in that. But when you stop and notice clearly, moment by moment, you begin to see that even though it's all so variegated and wonderful and strange and fantastic, when you break it down, it's just more of the same. It's just stuff. Every single object which arises is empty of substance. It's impermanent. It's imperfect, it's unsatisfying, it's dependently arisen. There's these same characteristics, one after the other, and there's no possibility of finding an object, a conditioned object in samsara that's not like this. And the greedy thrust of the mind begins to calm 
and begins to become appeased. And the, the impulse to reach out and grasp the next shiny thing becomes less and less. And eventually we can just stop doing that. The, the most useful way of thinking about conditioned existence, about samsara, is not as a place or, uh, or something out there. It's something we do. It's a way of being as we choose to, to do it. And if we just stop doing it, then there's the realization of the unconditioned. We can think about the process in different ways, and there are different, different approaches. What I began talking about is the process explained in terms of noticing objects. This is how Vipassana is usually spoken of, and it's the uh, well-known in the, in the Burmese tradition, this well-developed way of approaching the, the process, where the emphasis is on the objects. The other way of looking at the same thing, which sounds, at, at first glance, it may sound radically different, but it's essentially doing the same thing, described in a different way, is to put the emphasis on the subjective side, have the mind centered in the citta, the knowing mind. This is a way of talking about the process that's uh, more common in the Thai tradition, particularly um, Ajahn Man, Ajahn Mahabua, that lineage. The emphasis on resting in the clear knowing mind, the puru, or the citta. If you do that, then the objects are naturally clear and notice, noticed. And if you're methodically noticing the objects, that is synonymous with resting in the clear knowing mind. And all that's going on at any moment, whether you're meditating or not, all that's going on in, in a single moment is an object of consciousness and mind knowing the object. Now that's the simplest possible explanation of reality. This is what's happening at each moment. And we're just trying to make that, make that process fully conscious. If you're centered in the knowing mind, in the citta, then it's inherently peaceful. It's inherently clear. The citta cannot be purified or defiled. It knows all possible objects, but it's not affected by them. There's a Zen story about two monks debating about the nature of mind. And one says, mind is like a, a bright mirror set up in a high place that illuminates and reflects the 10,000 things. And the other monk says, that's not bad, but uh, I think it'd be more accurate to say that the, the bright mirror illuminates the 10,000 things, but nothing is reflected in its face thereby. And if we see clearly, we see that the both sides of the equation are emptiness. The knowing mind is empty, and the objects that are known are empty. 
Uh, nothing to see here. Keep moving along. Right? So, it's all it's all just uh, a process within emptiness. So there's nothing to cling to, nothing to allow to burden the mind. And this allows the mind to to open up, to have an experience of openness. Uh, non-obstructed. The awakened mind is described as without bounds, unobstructed, bright, and without a footing, or no footing found. There's a passage in the Pali that occurs in a couple of places which is quite difficult to translate and um, Maurice Walsh and Bhikkhu Bodhi have both, in translating this passage, have both included long footnotes uh, because it is a, it's a very cryptic, obscure passage, but it's talking about the nature of the awakened mind. And the key elements are uh, without obstruction, boundless, uh, unbounded, bright, no footing found is the most puzzling phrase. No footing found is a very literal translation. It's not based on anything. There's a, a passage in one of the suttas that uh, talks about it by analogy. It says if you have a, a sunbeam coming in through the window and striking the wall, it can be seen where the, the sunbeam alights. But if there's no wall, where does the sunbeam alight? It doesn't find a footing. It's without obstruction. So there's a kind of a, a paradox in our practice that we need to, on the one hand, pay close attention to detail, but on the other hand, we have to be able to open to emptiness, open to vastness. It is possible for meditators to become caught up if they're not noticing the, um, the objects correctly. It's possible to become caught up and obsessed. And this can happen to, uh, to people on retreat, that their mind can get caught in some, some small thing that seems extremely important. And people can and have done, you know, left the meditation retreat because of something, a purely mental object arises in the mind, but it seems blown out of proportion, like this is so important, there's something I've got to deal with right now. And very often, if they leave the retreat, then an hour or two later, they look at it, what the heck was I thinking of? This could have waited, what am I doing? But... Uh, it can seem uh, so critically important at that moment. And this comes from not noticing the objects in the correct way. The objects are taken on as something real or important or significant. One has to have a certain 
ruthlessness with the objects. Whatever object arises, this is this is not me. This is not mine. This is not worth coming into existence for. This is not worth moving from the center point. The ideal meditation is actually doing nothing. One can just be and not do anything. That would be a perfect meditation. However, that's so extremely difficult, so supremely difficult to just do nothing that we give you minimalist things to do, like watch your breath. As close as possible to doing nothing. So there's all these different sides to the, the practice. There's the precision of the single moment. There's the opening to vastness. There's the awareness of objects, and there's the being centered in the in the subject in the chitta. And the the challenge, the skill, is bringing it all together, making all these seeming incompatibilities work together. So you're just sitting there in the empty vastness, but you're noticing nothing. You're noticing specific nothings, specific objects that arise that are themselves empty, and they're noticed in the emptiness. They arise from the emptiness, they pass away into the emptiness, and the emptiness knows them. So I'll uh, leave these few thoughts for your reflection. Andamayang damakataya sadhukarang dadamase sadhukarang